You're listening to audio from Journey Bible Church. Join us every week for sermons from God's Word by subscribing to this podcast wherever you like to listen most. If you would like to connect with us, head to journeybible.org connect. Good morning. For those of you that uh, might be a guest this morning, my name is Mike Bickley and I serve Jesus on staff here at Journey Bible Church. And uh, we want to help people find Jesus and follow Jesus. And we believe God has given us a field manual to tell us how he wants us to live in the middle of the world that we find ourselves in. And so every time we gather together, we want to break open that field manual, the Bible, God's word. So this morning, we're in a second week on a two-week series. Uh, Many of you know I shared last week that I was in the Middle East when war broke out. I was supposed to be going into Israel, and God changed uh, my plans and uh, brought me home uh, safely, and I'm grateful for that. But it reminded me of how often we think scarcely about what God is doing in the world and what the place of Israel is in God's plan. Last week, we looked at the covenant that God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we looked at the reality that through that, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And we, we know today, in hindsight, watching that live out, that that covenant to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, that it moved from there and it went to the tribe of Judah and it went from there to the house of David and from there to Jesus the Messiah. And so literally, all the families of the earth are getting to hear the gospel and recognize Jesus as the Messiah. And Gentiles are now, we are the recipients of that covenant. Like, look around at this room. There aren't a lot of Messianic Jews in here. It's mostly here now us, Gentiles, recipients of God's blessing. So the question we ended with last week, is God done with Israel? Has everything God wants to do with Israel been done? Is the church now a replacement for Israel in what God wants to do? And these are really important issues. And as we discussed them this morning, I want to ask for you to give prophetic grace. You know, when we talk uh, about um, serious, deep questions like this, We want to do it with both biblical fervency and compassionate grace. So what I mean by this is we need to understand what is central to orthodoxy when it comes to prophecy. And and we want to focus on the literal return of Christ. There are a lot of viewpoints about the issues and the timelines surrounding the return of Christ. There's a debate on the order of the events and whether they are all literal or some are figurative. But to to be orthodox, you have to agree that literally Christ is coming back in his second coming to earth like he came in his first coming. So that is central to orthodoxy. And, uh, And alongside that, we need to realize prophecy is often difficult to interpret. 
Many of you may not remember times I've done this in the past, but I always ask you, so let's just do it together. Put your two hands like this. Get your thumbs out there. Get your thumbs up. Come on, get your thumbs up. This is Participation Sunday. Chiefs aren't playing, so you're not going to be throwing stuff at the screen today, all right? So I want you to close your, your eye and line those two up. Looking down the line, you see one big fat thumb. But looking from the side, you see two. And that's the prophets looked down the line and saw the Messiah, but they didn't distinguish that it was in two comings necessarily in the descriptions they give in prophecy. You will have the first side of the prophecy that talks about the Messiah coming as the Lamb of God to bring salvation. And at the same moment, immediately following, you will have a part of the passage that describes the Lion of Judah coming to pour out wrath. Today, we know that, but we still are distinguishing in that unfolding of prophecy what belongs where in terms of the timeline of the second coming of Christ. So we just want to realize it takes discernment, it takes care, and it takes study. And then third, prophecy not only needs, needs that careful study, we need to be cautious in our dogmatism. Now, as I say that, I, I want you to know that I believe we need to make clear decisions about the timeline and the events surrounding Jesus Christ. And our church has done that. In our doctrinal statement, we are a pre-tribulational, pre-millennial church. We believe that the rapture will happen um, before uh, the tribulation, and at the end of the tribulation, Christ will come back to set up his earthly kingdom. And, and we believe that with, with great passion. Um, but we're cautious in being dogmatic about all of the specific issues surrounding that timeline. And the reason for that is just humility, because we know that there's both a near and a far fulfillment to prophecy. In the prophecies, in the near, there was a historical fulfillment, and prophecies down the road, there's a theological fulfillment. So if you're with me on this, we need to uphold orthodoxy, a literal return of Jesus Christ. We need to make a decision about prophecy. We need to stick to it with passion, but we also need to give grace and be cautious about being overly dogmatic and secondary issues. Are you with me, church? Okay, so prophecy is really important. So some of you know the answer to this, and some of you don't. How much of the Bible is actually prophetic? Anybody want to put themselves out there that doesn't recently looked at the answer to this like I did? Anybody want to guess? All of it. All of it. Nope. A little bit overstated. A third? Okay, so here's the reality. I'm, I'm basing this on a, a Payne's book on prophecy where he did a study of all the scriptural passages. There are 31,102 uh, 31, verses in the Bible. 8,352 of those verses are prophetic, which means that we have about a fourth of our Bible that's prophetic which is amazing if you think about it, right? And, um, you know, I, I think what often happens, is, and this is 
may not be you, but as a New Testament saint in Jesus Christ, you kind of don't read the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, when you get, you go to the book of Romans and you're like, yeah, yeah, we're justified by faith. This is awesome. And then you get to Romans 9, 10, and 11, which is all about Israel. And you go, I'm going to Romans 12. And you just skip right over it. Do I have anybody that's ever done that? Raise your hand. Come on. Confess your sins right here. All right. You don't, we don't read the Old Testament. I, I read the Old T Testament at least once every year. And I read the New Testament at least twice every year. Because I need to wash my mind with the water of the word. And I need, I need prophecy as a part of my diet. Did you know that there are 1,817 prophecies according to Paine? 1,239 in the Old Testament, 578 in the New Testament. Now you look at those numbers and you go, wow, there's twice as many in the Old Testament. But what you don't realize is the Old Testament, the New Testament is one-third the size of the Old Testament. So if you did a comparison of the weight of the two, the New Testament is 35% richer in prophecy God's declarations against sin alongside God's prediction of the future than the Old Testament is. That is awesome. And it is amazing. And you and I need to study prophecy. Why? Why do we need to study prophecy? Let me give you some reasons. Number one, it unveils God's amazing predictions and life-giving exhortations. Prophecy is not just a declaration of what is to come. Alongside all prophecy is mingled with it how we should view God and how we should obey and live our lives in the midst of the unfolding of prophecy. So God not only tells us what's coming, he tells us how we are to live in the broken, fallen world in which we find ourselves. And so prophecy gives us life-giving exhortations. Second, it gives us a certainty that God has a sovereign plan. We're going to spend some time in Phoenix with my son um, over Thanksgiving. And um, I'm one of those guys that when we go somewhere, I always ask, if I'm not the one that's organized the trip, what's the plan? How many of you are what's the plan things? Like you get up in the day and like I'm asking Elizabeth, hey, what's, before I've had breakfast, what's the plan for dinner? You know, I'm looking down the line. This is one of the most beautiful things about prophecy. God has a plan. We can ask him, what's the plan? And God unfolds it for us in his word. So we can have certainty that God has a plan, God is carrying out that plan. And we know that God reveals his glory as we see his power to fulfill his promises, to bring about the things that he declares for you and I. So God gets glory as we live in light of the prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled, as we thank him for the prophecies that have been fulfilled. Now, specifically, I want to ask the question this morning, why should we be concerned about the prophecies for Israel? 
Since the Messiah has come, shouldn't we shift our focus from Jew to Gentile, um, from maybe uh, the idea of God's chosen people being Israel to the church? And I think it's really important for us to realize that when Paul was writing to the church in Rome, in chapter 1, when he's talking about the gospel and proclaiming it without um, any shame, he says, even after the church has been birthed, that the gospel is to the Jew first, and then to the Greek, to the Gentile, to you and I. So there's a, there's a prioritization in the scriptures on the people of Israel, on the city of Jerusalem, and on the throne of David. If you, if you are uncertain about that, and you're uncertain that, like, I don't remember reading that, like, in the New Testament, Pastor Mike. That's all Old Testament stuff. Got a little assignment for you today. Do a Bible search and put in throne and David and make it not an exact match because sometimes it'll use the word Davidic. Um, but you'll find that over 50 times in the New Testament, the throne of David is acknowledged and talked about. It's amazing. And so the centrality of Israel, the city of Jerusalem, and the throne of David still being at the center of God's plan for what is yet to come is talked about all through the Old Testament and all through the New Testament. And then second, we want to be concerned because here's the reality. If God can't fulfill his Old Testament promises to Israel, he isn't going to fulfill his New Testament promises to us. He's either a promise keeper or he's a promise breaker. I know he's a promise keeper. And I know he's going to fulfill them. Now, I really don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to take God's word for it. And I want you to understand that God is not done with Israel. Now turn in the book of Romans to chapter 9, if you would. That passage of scripture you may have never read. That you've always skipped over. Or if you read it, you read it really quickly like, I just want to get out of this. I want to get back to the meat. I hate to tell you this, but Romans 9, 10, and 11 is meat. It's great stuff. And the book of Romans actually makes a prophecy of a revival among Israel in the future. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to do a 30,000-foot flyover of this passage. I'm going to cover all three chapters, but only a select few verses in each chapter. I'm just giving you a high-level view. I want to encourage you to study these chapters yourself. They are super rich in understanding the character of God, his commitment and way of working in this world, and his plan of including the Gentiles from the very beginning. And so I can't touch on all that this morning. As a matter of fact, some people have taken just 20 weeks of sermons to get through these three chapters. We're, we're going to take a third of a sermon to get through these three chapters. So look with me at chapter 9, and I want you to understand when Paul is writing, 
Romans, the book of Romans, to the church at Rome, um, Jerusalem and its destruction and the scattering of the Jews hasn't happened yet. Paul is writing in the mid-50s after Christ, and, and the destruction of Jerusalem comes in 70 A.D., and so here, here is what Paul writes. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. He's just spent a whole chapter, chapter 8 on the Holy Spirit. That I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off for Christ. From Christ, for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul longs to see the Jewish people accept Christ, the Messiah. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption. By the way, you may not remember in Exodus chapter 4 when God chooses to bring his people out. He says that they are his firstborn son, that he has adopted Israel as his firstborn son. The glory, the Shekinah glory, the covenants with Moses, with Abraham, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, through the line of David, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And so you and I know that, it, that you, we can understand Paul and his anguish, wanting the people through whom the line of Messiah came to receive their Messiah. The end of chapter 9, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. That's the main argument of his whole book, right? Righteousness does not come. We're not justified by works. We're, We're justified by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were, as if it were based on works. And so here is this idea, the big theme of Romans, that that they've rejected their Messiah because they think they can earn their way to heaven by keeping the law. And he goes on and he says, they've stumbled over the stumbling stone, Jesus As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And so Paul understands that that they, they missed it. They stumbled over the gospel by faith and grace based on what Christ has done for us rather than what we can try to do to earn God's favor. And then he says this, brothers, My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. And then he goes through chapter 10 and he uses an analogy of of a, a cultivated olive tree, Israel, and how God grafted in a wild olive shoot, that's you, Gentiles. And he uses this analogy and then you get to chapter then chapter 11, and he asks this question. I I asked then, has God rejected his people? No, by no means. Rather, 
through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And then he says this, and in this way, the way God is using them now to graft in the Gentiles by their own hardening, all Israel will be saved. Now, he doesn't mean that every single Jew, what he is saying is there's going to be an incredible revival that comes in the future among the Jewish people. There's a time of revival coming for the Israelites. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. In other words, the gifts, those things we listed, remember the adoption, the covenants, uh, all of those things, the glory, and the calling to be his chosen people, they were adopted, are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. God is using peoples in a way to bring mercy to other people. Now, I know this is kind of heavy stuff, but I got to tell you something, okay? The reality is that that if you're living with a really bad diet, it's going to show up in your body. Anybody, anybody want to stand up, be an a, exhibit A? Like, right? Okay. If you are living with a shallow, anemic, spiritual understanding of the way God works, it's going to show up in your life. So as your pastor, my, my encouragement has to be not only to give you milk when you need it, but to give you food meet and to encourage you to dig deep to understand what God is doing and then look what what he does at the end of chapter uh, 11 he goes man the depth and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God how did he come up with this plan with Israel and the Gentiles how unsearchable are his judgments how unscrutable inscrutable are his ways wow When I look at what God is doing in the world, just wow. When I think of what God has yet to do in the world, wow. Let's have some amens. And so church, you and I need to, at this point, right here this morning, go wow. But it's better. Did you listen to the chapter that... uh, Ian read for us, Revelation chapter 7. So what I want you to realize is there's an exclamation mark added to the no. And the reality is that the apostle John sees down the line the fulfillment of Israel's revival in the tribulation. God shows him a vision of the fulfillment of what Paul prophesied in Romans 9 through 11. 
this is just absolutely amazing. And I want you to understand a little of the timeline. Paul gives that prophecy in around 57 AD before the destruction of Jerusalem. 70 AD, Jerusalem is destroyed, the temple is destroyed, and the Jews are scattered all over the Roman Empire. John, later than that, then on the island of Patmos, where he is imprisoned, gets a vision shown to him of what God's going to do in the future. We know that as the book of Revelation. It's a beautiful book. It's fantastic. And so what happens, I, what I want to do now is I want to read this chapter again. And I want you to listen now in light of the reality of what Paul just said. And I want you to get a picture of what God wants to do in the future by what you hear in the book of Revelation, in the seventh chapter. Now, just to put some timelines for this, judgment and the tribulation has begun. And chapter seven is kind of a pause to let us know something special that happens during the tribulation. It's, it's in the middle of the seals being broken. And here's what we read. After this, the seal that was just broken, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice, to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and the sea. Remember, Lion of Judah is coming to bring wrath against wicked evil in our world in the future. In the same way that, that the Lamb of God came in the first coming to bring salvation. Saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads until we put that mark of protection and ownership on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon. 12,000 from the tribe of Levi. 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar. 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun. 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph. 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. The fullness of Israel, a revival, being sealed, coming to Christ in the tribulation. This is a, a powerful vision showing us what's going to happen, that what Paul said would happen, John sees it happen. Can I have an Amen. You can be certain that this is going to happen. It's been declared. It's been seen. It's been written. We don't add to the book of Revelation, and we don't take away from the book of Revelation. Now, this is what is so awesome. This is not all that happens. Something that Paul didn't talk about 
is this revival comes alongside another revival, a worldwide revival with the full inclusion of people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And after this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, all peoples, all languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, just like they did in Revelation chapter 5, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, John, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said, Sir, He's basically saying, you know where they came from. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, I want to pause for a minute. You and I sometimes forget that God only pours out his wrath as an act of mercy to bring people to himself as well as an act of judgment against evil. And every judgment is an opportunity for people to come to Christ. And in the tribulation with Israel leading the way, there is going to be an incredible revival. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Can I have an amen? Amen. I mean, that's what we have to look forward to, to watch happen. You know, you and I are going to be in heaven. And God's going to be pouring out his wrath. And in the midst of all of that, there will be those who will repent and turn to Jesus. Now, here's what I want for you walking out today, all right? Number one, I want you walking out with a sense of hope, a confident expectation. I want you to believe the best is yet to come. Not that it's going to be easy, because that's not the picture the Bible paints for us. It pictures things getting worse. How many of you are over 60 years old? Okay. How many of you would say things feel like they're getting worse? All right. About everybody's raising their hands. But I want you to know God has a plan. He's carrying it out. He will not be thwarted. He cannot be stopped. Second, I want you to have confidence that God will give you direction in the middle of this. I want you to write down a passage of scripture right now. If you're taking notes, Titus 2, 11 through 14. That's the passage that talks about you and I waiting for our blessed hope, the return, the appearance of our Savior and God, Jesus Christ. But in that passage, while we're waiting, he tells us what we're supposed to be doing. So I want you walking out of here, not reading prophecy just to find out what's going to be fulfilled. You read prophecy to find out who God is and how we are supposed to live. Amen? All right, 
And then you can give God glory. As you walk out today, I want you to be absolutely confident God will fulfill all of his promises. God will bring about all of his prophecies. This week, I I was looking back, uh, reading an article, looking back over the prophecies in the Old Testament that were literally fulfilled by Jesus Christ. And now I'm looking forward to the prophecies in the Old and the New Testaments that will be literally fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Think about this. The Old Testament prophesied Jesus would be born of the seed of Abraham, the seed of Jesse, and the seed of David, that he would be born of a virgin, that he would be born in Bethlehem. It prophesied that there would be great persons that would come to adore him, that there would be children slaughtered in Bethlehem, and all of those things happened. It was prophesied that Jesus would be called out of Egypt, that he would be preceded by a forerunner, that he would be anointed by the Holy Spirit. It was prophesied that he would be a prophet like Moses and a priest after the order of Melchizedek, that he would enter into public ministry in Galilee, and all of those prophecies were fulfilled. It it was prophesied that Jesus would enter Jerusalem riding a donkey, that he would come into the temple with shouts of praise, It was prophesied that he would live in poverty and meekness and with compassion. It was prophesied that he would be a man without deceit and full of zeal, that he would preach with parables, that he would work miracles, and that he would bear reproach. And guess what? It happened. It was prophesied that Jesus would be rejected by his own Jewish brethren, that the Jews and Gentiles would come against him together, that he would be betrayed by a friend, that his disciples would forsake him, that he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver, and that that money would be given to buy a potter's field, and it was so fulfilled. It was prophesied that Jesus would die under intense suffering, that he would be silent, that he would be struck on the cheek, that his appearance would be marred, that he would be spit upon, that his hands and his feet would be nailed to a cross, that he would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was prophesied that he would be mocked, that gall and vinegar would be offered to him, that lots would be cast for his clothing. And guess what happened? All that justice prophesied. Church, it was prophesied that Jesus would be numbered with the transgressors, that he would intercede for his murderers, that he would die on a cross and yet not a bone of his body would be broken. It was prophesied that he would be pierced. It was prophesied that he would be buried with the rich. It was prophesied that his body would not see corruption. It was prophesied that he would be raised from the dead. It was prophesied that he would ascend to the right hand of God the Father. And guess what happened? Everything as prophesied. Now, if you think about this, all of these prophecies were written and fulfilled. All of them were written centuries before Jesus was on the scene. All of these prophecies I just read to you were fulfilled by not his friends, by his enemies. The ones who stood to lose the most by every prophecy that was fulfilled. Now I want to ask you a question. If he can do that for the first coming of Jesus, will he keep his promises about the second coming of Jesus? Can I have an amen? Amen. Do you believe that? Will you live in light of that? Let's pray. Father, we 
give you great glory for what you've already done. And just listing those out was so refreshing for my soul. To recognize the, the magnitude of your power to fulfill everything you've promised. And Lord, it just gives me greater confidence that everything that unfolds in the book of Revelation that is unfolding before our very eyes right now, we know that you are sovereignly in control, that we have hope, that we can be confident, and that we know how to live in these times up to the moment you take us to be with you. Lord, as your people, we make the decision to put you first in our lives. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This podcast was produced by Journey Bible Church in Olathe, Kansas. If you're interested in learning more about our church, visit journeybible.org. Thanks for listening.